0: Dermatology UK, the podcast, the podcast where we talk about all things skin. My name is Ashley and I'm Emmanuel. And on today's episode, we are talking about vitiligo. So if you haven't heard of this before, vitiligo is a long-term skin condition, which is recognized by areas of skin losing its color or pigment. It occurs in skin of all color, gender and age. But it is more obvious in persons of darker skin colour, isn't that right, Manny?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then you've got famous models like Winnie Harlow, who's struck Canadian supermodel uh but today we're going <laughs> to be talking to very special guest uh dr ferguson he is a consultant at St. john's institute of dermatology at guys and St. thomas's in central london which is one of the biggest dermatology centers in the uk uh, and he also heads the vitiligo service there so we're going to talk to him all about all of the ins and outs of this condition
0: Yes, indeed. So I actually really enjoyed um, recording this episode with Dr. Ferguson. It was re- really be interesting to hear kind of his insight into the cultural impact of vitiligo and associated stigma. And um, we kind of spoke about you know evolving medical perspective in treating the condition, how treatments were bleaching the skin, and um, new treatments on the horizon. So it was a really, really good uh, kind of overview of vitiligo as a whole. Um,
1: Definitely, yeah. I really enjoyed it. Should we crack on with the episode?
0: Yeah, no, we, we should. Uh, the only thing to, to note, actually, is we did record this um, in, in a clinic, face to face, one of the few we, we, we could have done. And let's just say we won't be doing it again because there's a lot <laughs> of background noise, but you can still hear it. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. The sound quality isn't great. So, without further ado, guys, enjoy the episode. <laughs>
0: today we are lucky enough to chat to Dr. John Ferguson. He is a consultant dermatologist with a specialist interest in vitiligo, phototherapy and photodermatology and in this episode he'll be giving a broader understanding of the condition of vitiligo, treatments available
1: and online support. So welcome.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be on the podcast.
1: Thank you for giving us your time. So we'll start with a nice easy question and that is what is vitiligo?
2: vitiligo is a disease that produces depigmenting of human skin it affects um, all different ethnicities and colors of skin Um, it produces white patches normally in a symmetrical distribution often around the face and the hands particularly it's usually generalized can cover patches of the whole over the whole body and it can sometimes progress to being to covering the entire body Sometimes it's only on one side or only on one part of the face. We call that segmental vitiligo. It's caused by autoimmune destruction of your melanocytes. These are the pigment-producing cells in your skin.
1: Okay. And what does autoimmune mean?
2: So autoimmune means that your immune cells, which are the white blood cells in your blood, are for some reason, and there are different types of white blood cells, but for some reason, your immune cells decide that your melanocytes, which are normally busily producing melanin and protecting your skin against the sun, are a problem. And they decide that they're going to attack them and then destroy them. It's it, we, we don't know quite exactly why that happens, but some people seem to be more prone to it than others.
1: And is there a way of telling if you'll be more likely to get it? Is there a test you can take?
2: There's not a test you can take to see if you're going to be more likely to get it. Okay. Um, but probably the best guide to see whether you're more likely to get it is whether other people in your family have vitiligo. So you're slightly more likely to get vitiligo if other people in your family have it. Although it's not a guarantee, and even if you have an identical twin who has vitiligo, actually... You know, you won't always end up getting vitiligo, and I think only about twenty five percent of of identical twins actually both get vitiligo if one oh, of that's them has it. So it's, it's so you know obviously it has a genetic component to it, but mm-hmm. there's clearly other factors that influence why patients develop vitiligo as well.
0: And would you most likely get it from birth, or is it? Further down it's
2: like? it's normally something that I mean about twenty five percent of patients are children, so they okay. get it you know before in their in their sort of teenage years or sometimes you know even younger Um, we have patients of you know three and up sometimes coming to see us Um, but the majority of patients are adults.
1: Say if someone were to develop vitiligo what would be the first treatment for them what would they be offered?
2: So most patients with vitiligo are offered either a topical steroid like helicon memetazone furoate often first Hmm. particularly if it's on their body um, sometimes umevate ointment if it's on their face as a second line treatment often added in is an ointment like protopic or topical tacrolimus usually we use 0.1% strength mm-hmm. and that's usually put on the face or, or on the body one application twice a day okay. so that's probably the first line treatment that you, would, that you would try
1: and then to step up what will come uh, after?
2: to step up we probably would add in phototherapy and that's still the gold standard treatment even though there are other things that are being looked at. Phototherapy is normally with narrowband UVB light so that's 311 nanometer light produced by TLO1 bulbs from Philips mm-hmm. um, and they, they put them in a big machine and you stand in the middle of it and it, they turn on and you have a bright light for initially a few seconds and they slowly build up the dose and often you'll need to have about 50 treatments twice a week so that can take Mm. as long as six months so having stepping up to the second line of treatment is quite a big commitment for patients and it's one of the reasons why sometimes patients never have phototherapy and just linger in primary care or with their local dermatologist just having creams and things sometimes because they don't want to have have, make that commitment to go up to sometimes because they just can't can't do it
0: Mm. and what's the difference between um, a phototherapy machine and a sunbed
2: so a phototherapy machine. So it's really the bulbs. The bulbs. So the main thing is really the, the wavelength that the bulbs produce. So most sunbeds produce broadband UVA light. That's really quite different. You know, those. That's maybe more between 320 and 360 nanometers. And actually, that makes a big difference in terms of how uh, likely you are to get burnt, how likely you are to get tanned, uh, and your risk of skin cancer. So mm-hmm. sunbeds, particularly if used over long periods of time, um, carry a big risk of skin cancer, whereas narrowband UVB doesn't necessarily carry the same risk of, of skin cancer. And actual fact, the long-term follow-up data for narrowband UVB used in a appropriate medical setting showed that it, it really is actually one of our safer treatments and that the risk of skin cancer are really, really low for those treatments.
1: So this may sound like a stupid question, but you mentioned about how with... Vitiligo, there's a loss of the melanin melanin in the skin. Yeah, are you then more likely to get skin cancers in those areas that don't have melanin compared to those that do? Because obviously melanin does give you a small degree of SPF protection from the sun. So, are you more likely to develop yeah. skin cancers in them?
2: So, that's a great question and one, and you know, for a long, long time, it was always assumed that actually vitiligo made you much more at risk of skin cancer in mm-hmm. those areas and you know patients were always warned you to know, make sure you put sunscreen because you've got no melanin there to protect you from the sun but actually curiously when they started to gather data from larger groups of patients and it seems like the, the bigger the data set the m- the more of an effect you detect that actually shows that having vitiligo is protective against skin cancer mm-hmm. and you know, that's that's borne out by large population studies that show it's, you know you're uh, uh, protective of uh, you know maybe five fold three to five fold protection against melanoma, and um, considerable protection against non melanoma skin cancer as well. Um, so you know you're you're much safer if you have vitiligo. Mm-hmm. To some extent that you know that will vary from you know from uh, with skin phototype as 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 it, as it would do normally. So you, you you know people with very fair skin are at more risk of skin cancer, and people with um, darker skin are less of a risk of skin cancer you know so that's still true and and you're not at no risk of skin cancer if you have vitiligo just perhaps at a slightly reduced risk.
0: So we know for some embracing life with vitiligo is not a problem um, but for others it can have a negative impact on their quality of life and self-esteem. What experience have you had that in your clinics?
2: Yeah so I mean it, 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 it varies enormously I, I mean the who comes to see me almost by virtue of the fact that you know they've they've made it to a specialist vitiligo service you know most of the patients who come to see me are distressed by their vitiligo and the people who yeah. aren't distressed probably don't come to the vitiligo clinic to be assessed you know it's pretty unusual for them to make it that far so everyone's on un- everyone is, is pretty much yeah. distressed by their vitiligo if they come to see me so that's kind of almost a given um, it does vary from person to person and you know I think there is a degree to which it's really obvious that it's worse if you have if you're um, from a culture where there is arranged marriage particularly if you're from India of the Indian subcontinent and you have big stigma issues attached to you because of vitiligo I think that's that's still a residual thing and I think it's curious even though everyone knows that vitiligo isn't an infectious disease now Mm. I think it is perhaps the feeling is is that perhaps it is to do with vitiligo perhaps looking similar to leprosy and in the past in in, years gone by that's a serious infectious disease and I think must have been very Mm -hmm. important for people to culturally try and avoid marrying their children to to people who had that so I think it's it's obviously caused a lot of distress and it continues to do that and that's one of the reasons why children with vitiligo from Indian families will be more distressed and generally that's something that you really notice it's different again for people from other parts of the world if you're you know from north africa or from the uh, arab peninsula i think your experience of vitiligo is slightly different and if you're from from west africa or south africa or east africa i think it it varies a bit you know what vitiligo means for you Mm -hmm. i think the cosmetic impact the raw cosmetic impact does just vary in a kind of a fairly linear way to how dark your skin is um but the stigma and the cultural factors they're much more subtle and you know i've been seeing patients for in the vitiligo clinic now for three or four years and i think i'm still just starting to learn a bit about it it's 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 difficult and also there isn't a huge amount in the literature about the cultural impact and the stigma mm-hmm. so there's there are areas where we'd like to to study more and to perhaps come to understand it a bit better just a comment to, to add on to the impact of vitiligo and and why it's so much worse if you have dark skin you know above all of the cultural stigma and the other things that are that are in the background is the fact that if you have vitiligo and you have dark skin, people will stare at you. And that's the thing that people unite almost everyone um, with vitiligo, is that people notice them and look at them in public all the time. And I'm not sure quite why this is, why having a difference in the colour of your skin makes people draw such attention to you. But it's clearly some kind of hardwired thing in humans that, You know, skin disease. They were kind of were constantly looking out for it in some kind of genetically determined sort of way. We were programmed to look for disease, and but it certainly makes people very unhappy. And it's one of the reasons why I think it is really important to treat vitiligo. And even if it's great if you if you can be positive about your vitiligo, for some people I think they can transcend that and they can go past people staring at them and they don't, don't care, and that's great. But if people are staring at you and you don't like it, I think that's very normal, and I yeah. think you should get you should seek treatment if it upsets you because actually there are things we can do to try and help. And there's n- it's not a deficiency of of yours if you don't like people looking at you all the time and you don't like the effect the way that people respond to you when you're trying to introduce yourself or you're going to a job interview. Uh, so I think that's something that's just, it's really important to highlight is that, you know, whilst there are people out there saying, you know, vitiligos, we should normalise it and we should try and eliminate the stigma of vitiligo. I think there's also an, a part of me that feels, you know, the, the realist in me feels, yeah, we should try and do those things, but for the time being, we should treat vitiligo.
1: So it's almost like the quality of life impact uh, will... Dictate the amount of treatment they get.
2: Yeah, the quality of life for vitiligo mm. is, you know, is something where it's been looked at in terms of some of our standard dermatology quality of life measures, and it's sort of similar in terms of impact to conditions like psoriasis, eczema. It's perhaps you know it, because it isn't most people with vitiligo don't have symptoms; they're itchy, they're not the skin's yeah. not in pain. I think um, it's marginally less impactful on people's quality of life because it's not painful, but it's only very marginal because I think it's so cosmetically disfiguring for people that it causes a lot of distress nonetheless.
1: Have you noticed a shift in the kind of narrative around vitiligo over the past decade or so? Because historically, I don't think it's been particularly well... Treated. Where do you, do you think do you notice now whether people are taking it a bit more seriously and there's
2: more treatment options? Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's always been groups of people who've taken vitiligo very seriously. Even yeah. if you go back to the 80s and 90s, and I talked a bit about Amsterdam. You know, there was a big skin pigment disease disorder unit there, and also in Bordeaux, in Alain Tabes group and um, Maro Picardo and these guys in in europe were already studying vitiligo and and taking it seriously for quite a long time but in the uk i think vitiligo has perhaps been a little historically under-treated. Mm -hmm. we're sort of waking up to taking it more seriously now and i mean i remember even just going back 15 years ago as a registrar in dermatology there were definitely colleagues who would kind of say oh well vitiligo maybe you know just give them some steroid and there's not much we can do and it's not worth giving them phototherapy because it won't work very well. It takes, they take up a lot of time, you know, because it's six months of treatment and you can never get them to stop the phototherapy and, you know, it might not be worth doing. And I don't think that was like a sort of conscious decision to sort of not not take the disease seriously. But I think, you know, having treated a lot of patients now with vitiligo and seen them much better with, that, with these courses of phototherapy, I sort of feel like it probably was a mistake to... Make one rule for all the patients. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when some of them, a third of patients who have narrowband UVB will really make a big improvement. And when you ask them whether they think it's worth it, they say, "Yeah, it's been terrific." So I think it's it's worth pursuing phototherapy treatment for tuberculosis patients. I mean, you do have to warn people that it won't work perfectly for yeah. everyone. Um,
0: how how do they know that it is working? Is it you, around so? The wh-
2: so what normally? Follicle? Yeah, that's right. It's around yeah. the hair follicles. So normally, it takes sometimes quite a few treatments and even sometimes as much as 30 or 40 treatments before you start to notice a a really good effect of Mm -hmm. repigmenting but sometimes patients will notice it after as few as 15 or 12 treatments and you'll start to get really good repigmenting happening it generally works better on the face and Mm -hmm. the torso and the upper arms than it does on the hands and the feet Um, but when you do get repigmenting what you see are little dots of brown around um, hair follicles and that's, it. that's because the melanin pigment is regenerated from the stem cells in your hair follicles. And that's where the melanocyte stem cells live. And so you've got a little reservoir of yeah. melanocytes around down in your hair follicle. And that's where they kind of live. And when they regenerate, they come out from there. And that's why you, you're sort of always looking at those hair follicles to see whether it's starting to come back. And for most patients, uh, that's, the, that's the sign that you're starting to to get better. It can take quite a while though. And, and you know even after you've initially started to repigment, sometimes it takes a long time for um, your patch of vitiligo to blend into the rest of your skin.
0: Yeah, and am I right in saying that if there's no color in the hair follicle, then it's very unlikely
2: it's less likely for you to get a good res- response if you yeah. lost the color of your hair in that area. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean to say if you've got grey hairs elsewhere that your vitiligo won't repigment. But if you've got white hairs in the area of vitiligo, mm-hmm. it definitely does tend to have a, a, a less good prognosis associated with it because you don't have the reservoir of stem yeah. cells to regenerate mm. from. So without
1: hair color, that's one thing. But what about so people with darker hair colors? Yeah. Would, am I right? Correct in believing they would have more of those cells there than someone
2: that's fair-haired or blonde? Yeah. So um, skin color has there are various variables that control skin color. It's not there is not just one thing that makes your skin lighter or darker. There are several different things that can kind of influence that. But to some extent, you know, it's it's really about the number of melanocytes and the amount of eumelanin. That's the brown melanin um, that they're producing. The female and in colour is the reddish colour that you know that you see in people with red hair. That's a sort of a slightly different pigment type that most people have, but you don't see it in most people because it's sort of blocked out by the by the browner colour. Ah. Mm. Um, so that's that's what sort of gives you gives you your your skin its colour normally, um, and it varies in different degrees
1: yeah does treatment options change depending on how fair or dark skinned you are so we talk we've talked about phototherapy if you were somebody that was relatively fair skinned would you want to do phototherapy
2: yeah so that is an issue so sometimes i think and i do say this sometimes to people with fairer skin that actually it might look worse before it looks better if you have phototherapy and so so i don't always do do this because It does depend a bit, and actually, if you've got if you've got slightly Mediterranean skin, or you you know you tan very well in the summer, you know suddenly your vitiligo becomes very noticeable. I I will tend to you know try and be guided by the patient and what they want.
1: So, are there any comorbidities? So, comorbidities for those of you that don't know are other medical conditions that we would associate with a disease. So, are there comorbidities associated with vitiligo?
2: Yeah. So, vitiligo. Uh, it doesn't. It isn't associated in terms of it's not doesn't cause these problems, but it's associated in that they often happen at, to the same person, um, but they're slightly different disease processes normally. So the things that are really commonly associated with vitiligo, the most important one is thyroid disease, autoimmune mm. thyroid disease, and we see up to twenty percent of patients with vitiligo have autoimmune thyroid disease, and. It's important diagnosis to pick up on because that needs to be treated, and yeah. you know, leads to all sorts of different problems. And we want to we want to diagnose that. But there are other things too. So diabetes, psoriasis, eczema, alopecia areata, um, pernicious anemia. This is quite a common problem in vitiligo patients. You see this fairly frequently. There's uh, type is a type of anemia. It's similarly autoimmune. Um, that affects the cells that help us absorb vitamin B12. And so some patients have um, a vitamin B12 deficiency that's caused by pernicious anemia who have vitiligo. And so we, we, we screen patients for, for B12 deficiency. Um, and there are other rarer associations that are slightly commoner in a group of patients who have vitiligo. And... Um, uh, it's sensory neural hearing loss is slightly commoner in vitiligo patients so more patients with vitiligo get deafness this might actually be a direct problem of vitiligo because we have melanocytes in our ears and um they have a they have an immune function there so our melanocytes they're not just pigment producing they also have an antigen presenting purpose that means that they in they they are they kind of act as an interface between our skin and our white cells. It's probably one of the reasons why they end up getting targeted by mistake by our white cells is because they kind of have this job of presenting antigens that they think might be suspicious from Mm -hmm. the local environment to our white cells, who then kind of will sort of, through some mechanism that we'll not go into, make a a decision about whether or not to develop uh, antibodies to this antigen. And so, in our ears, that's what they're doing. They they sit in the cochlea and the semicircular canals, the part of our, our middle ear, and um, they uh, uh, when they go when if they get damaged by say the Deligo process, they seem to cause a, seem to increase the tendency to develop a, a, a type of sensory neural hearing loss. So we see that it's surprisingly common actually. Patients present with tinnitus or hearing loss, and you. Mm. You ask vitiligo patients about that. It's surprising how many of them have that. Um, similarly, it's slightly commoner to have, particularly in segmental vitiligo patients, where it's affecting their eye. There, are, there are types of uveitis. So, if we have melanocytes on the back of our eye. And this is again for a slightly, slightly, not to protect us from the sun's radiation so much on the back of the eye, although it does do that. But it's really to allow this to stop internal refraction inside your eye so when the light comes in you want it to just go to go into your pupil and not to bounce around inside your eye too much so by having pigment along the back of your eye it kind of absorbs all the refracted light that is bouncing around inside your eye so that you just get the picture and you don't get too much interference if that Mm. makes sense so that's why when you if you have no pigment in your eyes that's why albino patients they often have a squint and those pink you know the pink eyes that you see in people with albi- with albinism Yeah. the reason they have that is because they don't have that pigment to stop the interference in their eye so they have poor vision as a result of that and develop and, and find it difficult to focus on things and so they develop a strabismus often so do you like to screen your patients
1: annually for thyroid problems or is it something so I just, their gp I, does
2: i screen them i so i screen patients for Diabetes, I screen them for thyroid problems and other things um, when they can come in um, and see me for the first time as a new patient. Yeah. And then um, I, I think with vitiligo patients, it's probably sensible to screen them annually for thyroid disease because I think thyroid disease is particularly common. Mm. I think the other things, you know, which we test for, some of the other things are, uh, and the other things that are perhaps associated, some of them are really rare, like myasthenia gravis and other things that are very unusual. You probably is not worth screening someone for annually. Um, you'd certainly notice but things like pernicious anemia, you'll notice because full blood counts get done fairly regularly. Yep. Um, but yeah, it might be worth doing a full blood count and a B12 and a thyroid mm-hmm. function. Um, fairly regularly, I'd say, for patients with vitiligo, just to check, even if it's every couple of years. We don't normally screen children as, as, as much for associated conditions. Um, okay. Partly, I think, just because I, I think... They don't like having their blood tests done. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> uh, but we, we do still, I, I do think it probably is worth keeping an eye on children and yeah. doing as soon as they can tolerate their blood tests. I mean, I don't think that it's necessarily if, some, if a, a four-year-old comes to see you with a patch of vitiligo insisting that they have a screen for some associated autoimmune conditions that yeah. they probably don't have. It's harder to justify than for an adult who just puts their arm out. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, so I think you know, but once you get to about 9, 10, 11 they, normally they'll go along with it <laughs> <like to. laughs> but it varies so there are still some 45 year olds who are pretty pretty worried
1: and what about diet? is there any link? there
2: are, there are some ideas about diet and vitiligo I think the most important thing to, to sort of remember with vitiligo is that even if there is a link between diet and vitiligo, it's not well enough understood yet for us to really be able to give advice about what to avoid and what to do in a really scientific way. Mm-hmm. We know that antioxidants, so foods that have antioxidants in them and some um, plant and herbal extracts in them with antioxidants can be useful. So sometimes I do encourage patients to take some herbal supplements like polypodium leucotomos, which is a tropical fern that's an antioxidant, um, and that's yeah, HelioCare tablets. So some patients take those and that can be helpful. But in general, I tend to downplay the link between food and vitiligo because there's not very much information about it. It's a kind of area where it would be nice to study. I think food, I think diet and disease is always difficult because... Yeah, it's always yeah. something people want to well, know. Well, it's, just- it's tricky because I think it's also difficult, diet and disease, skin disease, because there's always this feeling of like, how easy is this to study? You know, like everyone's diet so is different. Yeah. People say they're doing one diet when they're yeah. actually doing another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People like so have th- their diet mm-hmm. changes all the time. This whole idea and of they,
1: eating clean and all that. Oh stuff yeah, there's all well. sorts
2: of things yeah. that, and they kind of come and go, and there's like paleo, this and yeah, you yeah. know yeah. Atkins, Definitely. that, and so it's it's hard to it's hard to really I think do a scientific experiment around diet and skin disease. Yeah. yeah. But antioxidants, there's a bit of a feeling about those. So.
1: Do you find yeah. Do you ever get patients referred
2: to you, and actually come
1: here? They're like, I don't want treatment. I'm happy with my skin.
2: Yeah, I think.
1: unlikely
0: though because gps don't refer i think to be honest
2: i think (laughs) it's i think that does happen occasionally where you've got someone who's extremely motivated and really keen and you know they're they just say well you've got this problem you need to get help i'm going to refer you you know you need it and the patient's quite nice and pliable and goes okay if you think so yeah I suppose it'll go along and then they arrive and they feel um a little bit unsure as to why they're there and they're worried that maybe there's something that the GP wasn't telling them about the disease and actually when they find out that they're just there because we want to make the appearance of this problem better for them they say well I wasn't bothered about it in the first place so there's a few people that definitely Mm -hmm. do come through to us I mean and that's I think that's the same with again with all skin diseases yeah there's a there is a group of people who are um Either psychologically very robust, or you know, um, just have learned to live with something that they don't. They've decided they don't want to treat it. And in some ways, it's it's quite understandable. If you you know, if you can get over something and you learn to tolerate it, and you you, you don't you no longer notice people looking at you or in the street or whatever, and or you feel that they don't look at you that much and you're not really that bothered. Once you've done that. Once you've done that, that's quite a lot of work to get to that place. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes, sometimes if you're very fair-skinned, people that just don't notice it, and you know, mm-hmm. you don't really have a, you don't feel you have a problem, and you know, perhaps you're right. Um, but once you've done that work, if you if you have noticeable vitiligo and you've decided that you're not going to do anything, I think it's kind of like, well, um, why why would we interfere with that in a way? Uh, i certainly not going to force people to take to use treatment if they don't want to, and if they don't feel bothered by something then i think you know it's right to just you know let, let them let them be Absolutely. Um, yeah. you know you don't that's there's it. no um that's not it. we're not we're we're at the end of the day we're not treating diseases we're treating people so yes you've yeah. got to always i think keep that in mind um, and it's easy to forget actually sometimes because you get mm. you know as you in your efforts to try and you know look after people i think sometimes you do get a bit Focused on the science and the next trial or whatever you're doing, and you know we've just got to get more people in, <laughs> and you know doing all of that, and they always got to let them have their say and see. What yeah, they take want. a step back. But yeah. it's rare for people to make it all the way to the specialist clinics without if they don't care about something. Yeah,
0: and if your vitiligo is so widespread that you've more vitiligo than your natural color, yeah, do you um, use skin lightening like hydroquinone? Is that what it's called?
2: Yeah, so we do sometimes. I mean, monobenzyl ether of hydroquinone is the is the treatment. Yeah. And it's it is it's used here and all over the world to depigment patients. Um, it we tend to tr- always try and encourage patients to repigment first, mm-hmm. particularly if they have, you know, they're presenting quite early and they have minimal percentage of their body surface area involved. But if someone has very extensive vitiligo, sometimes if patients have tried other treatments without results or if they really just are absolutely sure that they what they want to do is depigment their skin, we depigment their skin and it works pretty reliably actually. Essentially what it does is provoke vitiligo in the areas where the skin's still normal and cause the autoimmune process to spread more 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 extensively. So you're kind of stimulating the disease in a way. Right. And that's how it works. You're not people talk about bleaching of the skin, but that's not actually mm-hmm. what you're doing. What the MBH does is it goes into your melanocyte because it, it looks a bit this is a bit this is a bit sciencey. <laughs> no, <it's good. laughs> I I like it no, it looks a bit like tyrosine. So tyrosine is the precursor molecule and tyrosine's a, an amino acid. Okay. Okay. And tyrosine is the precursor molecule from which um, melanin is produced. Okay. And tyrosinase is the is the sort of enzyme, and it goes through various different stages. But that's the precursor, and it turns into melanin, and then it gets and then melanin is is a polymer, and when it, produce, it gets produced as a sort of big polymerized pigment. Okay. So it's it's not quite a protein because it's just one thing repeated and repeated, but it's kind of like that. And it's, a, it's this pigment that, that's, that's there. The MBH looks enough like tyrosinase to kind of basically get smuggled into the melanocyte. Mm. And it's kind of like if you were making, I don't know, you were in a factory and the, someone replaced the one of the parts with something that looked <laughs> a bit like it. And you were trying to make radios, but actually instead of an aerial, you had like a big long piece of straw or something. And essentially it starts to come out wrong and it's the whole thing's wrong and then the polymer's all wrong and it clogs up the melanocyte and then the melanocyte gets really stressed and doesn't know what to do (laughs) and then it starts to produce these proteins called damage associated molecular proteins and those recruit in your white cells so your immune system kind of charges in because it sees that the melanocyte's stressed and it thinks well this must there must be a problem here either the melanocytes turned into a cancer or perhaps it's you know, found a new, it's found a new it perhaps infected with something, or who knows, and the immune system kind of gallops in to try and save the day. But instead, it, what it ends up doing is, is destroying the melanocyte, and then it does that more and more. And the more MBH you put on, yeah. the more it'll destroy your melanocytes, because it's just clogging it up. And so, you know, that's that's how, it's, how it works. So you have to be kind of careful with doing something like that. Yeah. You, know, you also have to be careful in patients, you know, that they might don't spread it to their family, um, because that's a big problem with MBH. So that's probably the biggest side effect in a way is connubial spread, we call it. And it's where you, you, the patient spreads it to their partner. Canubial? Canubial. Oh. I think, yes. It's, it's for me, me I associated that
1: with canoodling. That's Cano- what I was yes. That's,
2: that's, <laughs> I think that's very good. Yes, probably is how it, how it gets spread around. Cano- canoodling in the marital. Uh, um,
1: uh, yeah, so... So is there risk of cancers with it, or do you get inflammation from it? Cause it's just really so
2: there, there, there's a theoretical risk of cancer, and there's a theoretical risk of liver problems. But okay. actually, in reality, we don't see that very much with okay. MBH. The big side effect cool. we see is irritation. Okay. So sometimes patients get irritated by the, by the cream. And that's their skin, not their, their emotions. That's their skin. Yeah. yeah they okay. find their skin getting irritated by it. Yeah. yeah. And actually that's normally a sign that it's starting to work Mm -hmm. and then the depigmenting kind of follows and it often goes a bit gray to begin with and then eventually it just it just evens out and it is an interesting experience for patients who have it so you know some patients it seems like it's going to be this huge thing where you're like changing ethnic group because it's it's almost seems like you know in terms of how people the outside world perceives you Mm -hmm. you've crossed over from one group to another you know Mm -hmm. people you as you walk down the street people who previously would have thought that you were the same as them now think you're different (laughs) and people who previously would have thought you were different (laughs) to them now think you're the same so i think they do have an interesting perspective on the world people who've depigmented with vitiligo Mm -hmm. and that i you know had some interesting conversations with people about what that's been like and how that's been most people say it's actually been great it's been no problem it's fine yeah. I don't have any difficulty with my family I don't have any difficulty with other people and it's actually been good okay there's an occasional person who has a story about how it was strange or their family you know accused them of changing this color of their skin you know to try and fit in with other people or that's pretty rare most people are really happy with the result and end up feeling um, relieved and actually I was almost surprised by how positive the experience was for the patients I think I was worried that they would have a uh, it would be psychologically difficult for people to adjust yeah. to changing their skin color, yeah. but actually, you know, really happy. It often ends up being permanent, yeah, because once you've started down the route of depigmenting your skin, it's kind of, it's a bit of a okay, you've gone a bit too far. Yeah. Dry. So the most famous patient who treated their skin with monobenzylic hydroquinone is Michael Jackson, and I'm, an, I'm oh. not sure that everyone knows that Michael Jackson had vitiligo and knows that he, is eventually Turned his skin white with monobenzyl ether. It's, it's interesting to note that he never ever said to anyone that he had vitiligo. Mm. He underwent extensive cosmetic surgery to try and make his face match his skin. You, if you were looking for someone who suffered from their vitiligo, it's clear that he definitely did. And yeah. you know, it's w- worth worth remembering. You know, it's, it's it's amazing to think that you know no one really knew that much about it while he was alive that he had this problem. Um, but he was clearly suffering quite badly throughout
0: and the I suppose now uh, there's many other famous faces who have spoken openly about their diagnosis we were talking about it earlier so Winnie Harlow and um, actor John Hamm comedian Joe Rogan John Hamm um, I don't know um, that. yeah yeah and no. Graham Norton they oh. all yeah well, I was researching this
2: yeah oh well that's interesting I, yeah. I don't I, I I know Winnie Harlow of course but not the others so much um, uh, but, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it is, it's is—it's a common problem. Yeah, you know? more I mean, common
1: than you would yeah. And then I just want to ask a question, because we haven't spoke about, you know, when they get a biopsy, isn't there something they can do surgically with
2: the... So, yeah, so for a segmental vitiligo, this yeah. is melanocyte transfer. Yes. So MKTP is melanocyte keratinocyte transfer procedure. So this is something that we want to introduce here. So, so is that uh, available in the UK? So melanocyte keratinocyte transfer procedures are available in the UK, but only in the private sector. and we want to try and make them available here getting the equipment to make these available for patients Mm -hmm. they're interesting because it's quite technically tricky you have to take a biopsy from someone's leg mash it up add this tryptase enzyme that breaks down their proteins and then spray the melanocytes substrate onto the skin after you've kind of prepared it with laser or abraded it so that it's kind of slightly raw and mm-hmm. you've revealed the area of vitiligo sort of surface and then you spray the melanocytes on and then they kind of take root in that area so you're sort of transferring them from one part of your body where there's no vitiligo to a part where there is vitiligo mm-hmm. but it only really seems to work well for patients who have segmental vitiligo but it doesn't work very well it a generalised vitiligo the procedure yeah well it's it's be a bit painful afterwards for it's a bit like if you had a very bad graze yeah something like that um, but yeah, they're done all over the world. Um, they do do them on, on Harley Street here. And we'd like to introduce them in the NHS. Oh, wow. um, yeah, so we're, we're kind of behind not having it yeah, available no, to the it's public lovely. here. And, and, and it's, it's also available in the USA. And, you know, so people, people do do it everywhere else in the world. So we should be doing it in the UK.
0: And is there any support online or otherwise for, for patients who come through your service or who are at home listening right now?
2: And there's a great support group, um, Vitiligo Support UK. The Vitiligo Society is one of the older um, and more established vitiligo um, sorry, dermatology charities in the UK. For people who are interested in kind of up-to-date research, um, John Harris who's a um, professor at the University of Massachusetts in the States has a great blog at the University of Massachusetts vitiligo website which is quite worth reading if you're interested in the scientific stuff
0: oh, Fantastic. and then um, the only other thing is the skin camouflage clinic do you
2: so, yeah skin camouflage can be really helpful for some patients there's no science behind saying that I'm saying mm-hmm. but I think some for some patients it's nice to have a break from having vitiligo and skin mm-hmm. camouflage can do that because it can be if it's if you get trained by an expert it can be really, really amazingly effective. The problem is, is it takes a long time. It takes a lot of effort. Mm. You know, if you're, if you've got vitiligo on your hands, for example, it will tend to come off anyway. And so it's kind of it has a it has a value, and it's particularly good for facial vitiligo. Yeah. Uh, and if you're used to putting on makeup and you know you're you're good at it, it can be brilliant.
0: Yeah. And I'm I'm right in saying that there's clinics right across England, and you can self refer. Yeah.
2: So yeah. So you can you can get in touch with Changing Faces, and you can self refer yeah. on their website, um, and that's the best way to do it. Um, there are there are of course, you know there are independent makeup charity, artists and people yeah. that will that can that can help you too. Um, yeah. And we can put up can we put up a link on the website? Is there? Yeah. A, yeah. We definitely. Can put up a link to yeah. um, with all
0: these support that you've mentioned. To
2: those yeah. things. Yeah. That's.
0: And so what would be your final take-home message for those listening?
2: Um, so vitiligo is a, a serious autoimmune skin disease that affects about 05 to 1% of people.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But it's sort of disproportionately the burden of psychological distress from vitiligo is carried by people with darker skin types. And for those groups, I, the, my message would be, you know, if you want treatment, seek it and get referred into dermatology and ask for treatment because you're entitled to it and we should be we should be treating vitiligo and there's quite a lot we can do don't listen to anyone that says there's no treatment for vitiligo or you know vitiligo is not worth treating it'll just come back you know i've heard that lots of times when i was training and, and i think it's the wrong approach we have to mm-hmm. take it seriously
0: fantastic thank you so much
2: thank you it's Sounded a bit cheesy at the end there. No, No, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much.
0: Welcome back to the end of the episode. Mm. So, Manny, what did you think?
1: (laughs) I really enjoyed our chat with Dr. Ferguson. He's got such a good way of making information so relatable. I think uh, what he really hit home is just the lived experience of vitiligo because in a position where he is you know seeing patients with it every single day you do have people like winnie harlow who uh, are such good spokespeople for it but you know not everyone has as much confidence and that's absolutely fine uh, what about you ashley what do you think
0: no I, I think you you hit the nail on the head there i think i really liked how he phrased you know when you have vitiligo people will stare
1: yeah
0: um and that is you know, it's something that unites mm-hmm. um, everyone with Vitiligo. And, and he said very well that if you don't like this, then that's completely normal. Um, and so treatment is there if you want it, but only if you want it. And there's loads of great professionals like Dr. Ferguson out there, you know, yeah. who will help you yeah. achieve whatever it is that you want to achieve. And I used to actually work in, in phototherapy. So we we'll treat many of these patients oh. with, um, with the UVB light. And even from, my experience with them although it was a good you know it was a lot of effort coming in up to three times a week just for a few seconds under the you know under the light it it did help and mm. um, so it is something you know, to consider but you actually brought up the melanocyte transfer money um, yes, and i think that's also really interesting
1: yeah it is and if you want more information on any of the treatments for vitiligo you can head over to the vitilo vitiligo society website uh, which i believe is vitiligo org. but we'll double check that and put it in the show notes right ashley <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Well, Brill, well, thank you for joining us for another week here at Dermatology UK, the podcast. As always, stay safe and we'll see you guys soon. Bye.